4: Hey everybody, welcome to Movie Crush, Friday interview edition, uh, here in the home studio, Pond City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, today I had in one of my very best friends again, uh, part of the friends and family edition, uh, Scott Ippolito. Scott is a film industry professional, a long, long time. He's been doing this for, geez, probably about 20 plus years, 22, 23 years. Uh, we met in the film business and, um, He actually met Emily before he met me. They're old friends. And he is a cameraman and a cinematographer and a DP. And he has been a director. And he's also a writer. Scotty and I have written some screenplays together. He's a very funny, uh, funny guy and great writer. Um, And he's just a good dude. He's one of my oldest, oldest friends and uh, like a brother to me. So it was very much fun to sit down and talk with him about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And uh, we do so Right now. Give it a listen. So if I was able to talk to Chad Crowley and interview him, then I should be able to interview you without feeling too weird.
5: I think so, yeah. I'm I'm, going to try not to make this weird.
4: Well, put your pants on.
5: (laughs) (laughs) There's enough room between us.
4: And I apologize to the people out there for my condition, but I got sick. In Australia. Australia. In Sydney. I yeah. uh, got some weird Australian rhino virus. So. Yeah.
5: I, th- I think
4: it was the plane ride. I feel like we both felt bad after our plane ride from Melbourne. Yeah. And if you're confused by that, my friend in the studio met me in Australia because oh. that's what friends do.
5: Oh, we're already live.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've been recording. I'll just, I'll find an entry point. This may not even make it in. Who knows? I might wait next week till I feel better and just re record the whole thing without you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, there is an app for me, I think. <laughs> so, uh, it's funny, though, when I was talking to Chad, because you guys have sort of similar backgrounds in that you're, like, I, I sort of know your family, like I sort of know Chad's family, mm-hmm. and I know you guys, and you're both easily like black sheeps in your family. And, not to knock your families, but...
5: No, I think I'm just... I'm, I'm the liberal sheep. I don't know if I'm the black sheep.
4: Yeah, but culturally and politically, you guys both, like, kind of departed and went your own way. Well, I think
5: that happens to a lot of people who grow up in a small town. You yeah. Know, you know, you go away to college and you sort of become a different person. Although I was always, I don't know, I'm just a sensitive soul, Chuck. Well, I'm kind not of that cu- my family isn't. They're wonderful people. They just... Yeah, you know. yeah. Sure.
4: Um, but you grew up in Columbus, yeah. Georgia, which... Um, I'm curious what you're like in high school, actually. Uh, Complete nerd. <laughs> okay. Well, I know you're in the marching band. Yeah. I, well, yeah. There you go. Which yeah, is you, you, now you're just now you're just being redundant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rubbing it in.
5: Uh, and you played the trumpet, which I think makes you, a, aside from a drummer, I think that's about as cool as you can probably be in marching band.
4: Yeah. Well, our buddy Jim Issa was a drummer,
5: and Jim is cool. Yeah.
4: Um, the heart and soul of El Chipo, That's right. Uh. But as far as, like, as it relates to movies, because, like, you're—I I will have set this up, but for everyone who didn't listen to the very beginning, um, you're a cameraman, you're a cinematographer, you're a camera operator, and just an all-around camera nerd. Uh,
5: Yeah, yeah. I, I think you used a few of those terms loosely, but, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Did that start in high school or, or before? I was always into photography. Yeah. I mean, always into cameras and— is this in the right place? Yeah. Okay. Uh. Yeah. Always in the camera. So it was. It, I think it sort of became a natural evolution. And you know, my parents took me to see Jaws when I when it was in the theater. So I saw that when I was like what seven years old. Yeah, that was my question. Like, was your family feeding you good movies and good culture? I would not say that they were feeding me good movies and good uh, culture. I don't know that that was widely available in Columbus, and, and certainly TV wasn't what it is now. Sure. with What the options? But I mean, you know, there, there are hundreds of movies that when they come on, all I can think of is, you know, laying on the floor of the living room, watching them with my dad on a Saturday or Sunday, you know, oh, so, okay. so I definitely, I consumed a lot of TV. Yeah. Well, I did too, but my dad, I mean, he was around, I guess we
4: watched some TV together, but I don't know. I've t- I mean, I've talked to you about this some, I, I just don't remember my dad being into movies. Or watching a lot of, maybe we watch some war movies and stuff like that.
5: Yeah, those are the, the movies that resonate with me, from my dad. You like know? World War II films? Yeah, The Longest Day. Yeah. And and then, uh, you know, strange things like I have an abiding love for Abbott and Costello because my dad loved oh. Abbott and Costello. So. Well, that's cool. I've seen every Abbott and Costello film. Really? Probably 10 times, yeah. Oh, man. See, that's great. I didn't get any of that.
4: I think uh, my dad thought peak culture was like the, the Mandrell sisters tv show <laughs> I, I believe we had a few of their eight tracks so I don't... <laughs> <laughs> my dad was all over the map like our eight tracks i remember very specifically we had blondie the tide is high which is fucking great eric clapton slow hand and that's awesome but if if i were to go to my dad today and say blondie or eric clapton he would probably be like i have no idea what you're talking about are those people <laughs> i have
5: i have a whole uh i have a whole basically a playlist that's just music from when I was a kid. It's you know, Rocket Man. Oh yeah. There's a bunch of Charlie Rich. No one knows what goes on behind closed yeah, doors. Yeah. And you know, uh-huh. my dad was he loved Barbara Streisand, but you know, she was huge back then. Funny girl. Seventies was yeah. Know, barefoot in the Park. I mean, yeah, that was for her, sure. Her era.
4: Um. Yeah. I guess it's weird. My dad just didn't. He wasn't a fan of anything. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like he wasn't like, oh man, I have all the Beatles albums or whatever.
5: <laughs> was, my family was not very musically. I would I would not yeah. say they were I mean my mom's favorite artist was Engelbert Humperdinck so I don't <laughs> We dude we saw him in concert when I was like 6 The Humperdinck?
4: Yeah. The Hump. That was one of my uh it was one of my first shows that we saw like Kenny Rogers, Engelbert Humperdinck, um Bobby Goldsboro and these were all at uh Six Flags when they would have the concerts. Sweet.
5: The Southern Star Amphitheater. Six Flags known for its uh contributions to the cultural milo <laughs> <laughs> you would probably trek over to six flags though, huh oh yeah i mean that was that was you know yeah the high point of excitement sure I and mean, we only went to disneyland once i think well we had six flags we didn't need disneyland yeah you know and when you're small i mean even the hansen
4: cars are scary <laughs> what are like? the, oh yeah yeah the little old-timey cars yeah. <laughs> yeah but disney world had the race cars did they yeah they had the little sports cars but they went the same speed as the hansen
5: cars well, but you felt like you were in a Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to imagine you were in a... Hey, I'm in a Model T, ladies, look out! <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, they give each kid a little monocle when they
4: get on. I'm high on a reefer here. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what about your brothers and sisters? Were they like? Did you have anyone kind of feeding you a cultural pipeline?
5: No, no. I think uh, to you're on your own. Yeah, I, I think movies were an escape for me when I was a kid. the The summer, of, well, I think it came out in, in Christmas, E. T. But it was 12 and the yeah. the summer that came out I would scrape together you know money however I could and you know it was you know a couple bucks to see a movie back then and yeah. I think I probably saw ET a dozen times that summer. Yeah. that changed know. everything. Yeah, I mean I, I think I mean I, I think a lot of people who came of age when we did are, you know for better or for worse, you know, marked by Spielberg. I mean he was <laughs> You know, in a I, good way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a Catholic church way. <laughs> but he was the uh, he was a good Jew. <laughs> Not a good Catholic. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, he was, if you, if you weren't, you know, if you didn't grow up on the Upper East Side of New York or something and weren't seeing art movies every weekend, then right. your entry into art was probably through, you know, the more commercially successful films of Spielberg. I mean, you know, that's how I found yeah. out who Truffaut was. I was like, oh, he was the guy in. Yeah, yeah. Close Encounters, and I was like, oh, he was a filmmaker, and then I started watching Truffaut films, you know? So. I never really thought
4: about that, about, uh, like, being a 12-year-old, and the the biggest movies were ac- also good movies. It's not like now. I mean, some of the big movies now are good. I don't want to be, like, that guy and say, like, eh,
5: it all sucks now. But the 70s were a, a different time. You still had, I mean, the studios weren't completely owned by corporations. Then, yeah. So you still had the old-time Hollywood executives who brought these people on board because they believed in it yeah, yeah yeah i mean spielberg you know famously i mean he would have never finished Jaws in the modern era because it right. was so far over budget they'd have pulled the plug yeah and i think lou wasserman who was you know the executive who worked with him was lou wasserman <laughs> Lou Wasserman. <laughs> 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 but uh you know he, he he helped make spielberg's career i mean he's the one that you know sort of after duel was like hey this kid's got
4: chops and, right you know so nowadays, what would happen then is they would find that kid and put
5: him on the next like Marvel movie, or a better example, they put him on the next Star Wars movie, and then they yeah fire him, and then they would right. bring in Ron Howard, and then we'd end up with. Him. I saw Solo on the plane, by the way. I did watch it all the way through. Yeah, you know, it's the best Han Solo movie that came out this year. Yeah,
4: it's it's <laughs> uh, it's greatest sin is its mediocrity. Yeah, it's amazing that with, with uh, Donald Glover on such a high that he's so yeah, he was good. He, he rose above it, but. I mean he was Billy D. Williams as a young guy, like he he did the voice, he did everything that sort of refined Billy D Williams thing, yeah, spoiler here I, I I didn't know what to make of his
5: uh seeming love interest with the robot,
4: yeah, because she said like oh yeah, he's into me or whatever, and that was I thought that was the joke, but then when the robot died, it yeah. seemed like he was into <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah
5: I, that, that was a little weird, works every time. It
4: was good seeing Clint Howard though. That's the good. That's the best thing about Ron Howard taking over. Is you get Clint <laughs> Howard in the Star Wars movie, and there's the one other guy too. Oh, who was it? I saw another Ron Howard regular mm-hmm. pop up in like a little cameo or whatever.
5: It's always Clint and that other guy. It was funny. I was uh, I uh, I was working on the Walking Dead yesterday, and my buddy Deek down there is the A camera operator, and he. Uh, He's got lots of great stories. That's one that, this is truly what I love about the film business the most. It's just the great war stories for people. And he was talking about being on the lot when they were doing uh, The Grinch. Uh-huh. And he said, he was, I forget what movie he was there working on, but he was like, I walked around the corner and I came across, you know, Who Holding, which is where they <laughs> hold all the background Who's. You right, know? right. He's like, so there's all these people dressed as Who's, you know, lots of small little people dressed as Who's. Oh, man. He's like, they're all smoking cigarettes. They're on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. If only for a photo.
4: That was, uh, Mitzi worked on that, remember, back in the day. Yeah, yeah um i think you and i were actually traipsing around the back lot there one day when when it was I going think on so because we saw ron howard that day remember mm-hmm. all right everyone mitzi is an old friend of ours who works in a costume department she worked on that movie and i did forget we d- did we sneak onto the back lot i feel
5: like we did or do we well we went to universal and then there's a gate. well probably not there anymore but i mean there's the gate between the studio and the universal like, yeah attraction place and like, it was just open yeah, well, if, I mean, if if you worked on the lot, it was sort of a, a known secret that right. you, you know at lunchtime you could go ride some rides at Universal, yeah, yeah. and and then you know, Cause I, I forgot all about that. We walked
4: around the Universal back lot and like <laughs> little kids, just like we zip lined <laughs> through Australia like little kids.
5: I would walk around on that back lot like a little kid today. I, I always say that I, I think being a, a camera operator is is without a doubt the best job in the film business because yeah. aside from you know. Aside from the, the the occasional wars between directors and DPs, where one tells you to do one thing and the other tells you to do the opposite, yeah. you're you're really just there to right know, service the story and compose a good frame and yeah, you know, I mean, you're the one taking the picture. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, there's it's it's fun to watch something and think, oh, I was the one who made the choice. You know, right? It's not so fun when you're the one watching and you're like, wow, I made a bad choice. <laughs> yeah,
4: and and then you're also kind of out of the politics to a large degree.
5: Yeah, 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 and and as far as push jobs. I mean, the people on, you know, being an operator can be hard. I mean, certainly handheld, there's pressure, there's, you know, it's it's not a cakewalk necessarily, but yeah. the upside is huge. And having been an AC for so long, carrying heavy cases, and oh, pushing brother, heavy cards. seeing you do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, those guys are unsung heroes. Yeah.
4: Um. So going back to high school, like, did you, and I always ask people like, um, the people that ended up in the film is this like, I had no idea that this was a a thing that you could do, or I probably would have graduated high school and become a PA at eighteen.
5: But did you thought did you think that was a job that you could have? No, it, it, it never even occurred to me. I, I, I'm right with you. I think if we had grown up in California, yeah, you know, you, when we lived in California, it's an industry town. It's yeah. like the way Atlanta has become. You, you sit down at a restaurant now and you hear the people next to you talking about you know their grips or their art right. department or you know. But yeah, it it didn't seem like any sort of a attainable career, you know. So you didn't even aspire to No, not at all. And and, and and we've talked about this before when I when I got out of college, I moved to Utah for a year and they were filming Geronimo and City Slickers out there which your brother. That's right. was working on at City the time. Slickers too. And at the time I had the thought, like man, I would love to work on that, but you know, looking back now, it would have but been how? A, it would have been, a, you know, looking back now it would have been as easy as finding their production office and being like Right. Yeah, I'd like to be a PA and I'm sure compared to a town of 5,000 sure. in Utah, like a college educated kid who wants yeah. to work cheap as a PA would have been like, and you'll work as a local? Yeah. They would have loved that. <laughs> we don't have to pay to put you up. Right. We can abuse you. Yeah. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the film business. But instead
4: you just got stoned and went mountain biking again. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good summer. <laughs> I bet it was. Uh, so what was your path? Like, what you, what'd you want to be when you grew up? I don't think I ever have asked you this.
5: Well, When I was a kid, I was artistic. I drew a lot. And my mom, you know, she was like, oh, you're going to be an architect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, so I went through a a phase where I drew buildings, you know. Yeah, I could see that. But I think the older I got, I, I don't know, art, I mean, obviously art is, you know, a big thing for me and, you know, been a lifelong fascination, but, you know, I think I was drawn more towards photography than drawing at a certain point, so. So you were taking pictures pretty early. Yeah, I'd, I never had a good camera. I mean, I had like one of those Kodak 110 cameras with the you uh-huh. know, that long,
4: skinny roll of film. Oh, know, yeah, just, yeah. You know. So you didn't have like, see, you, you know, my dad's a photographer. So he but, was into it back then. And I would get to play around, you know, when I had permission with like, like the Canon AE1 was like his first good camera. And then I, I think he eventually, uh, eventually became a Nikon guy. But I always had good
5: cameras around me and I was just kinda like, eh. Yeah. I, I well I mean, who knows how it works. I mean if I'd had one maybe I w- would have accelerated my path, but then again, maybe right. maybe I would have been eh, it's it's easy, it's right there. Right. And maybe the fact that it was something to attain made it yeah, you know, made me struggle for it more. I mean I every time I pick up my camera now, I'm like I still think Oh, I love it. I finally hit a place where I can own what I consider to be the best camera in the world. <laughs> right. Which is, what, what's your best camera now that you're using? Uh, I have a Canon 5D-R, uh-huh. which is a high megapixel Canon 5D version. Yeah. it's There are certainly newer cameras and the argument going on and on what's better, but right. for, for me it's... As good as it gets. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, the fact that the whole Canon 5D revolution is amazing. I mean, that overnight... We, we, you know, every Joe Schmall on the street had a camera that had, you know, cinema depth of field. And, right. You know, all the, all the image discussions aside, I mean, it was an enormous leap. You know, yeah. So. What, um,
4: when did you, like you graduate college from Emory and then what was your immediate path from there? Well, being a philosophy major, you know, <laughs> there, were, there were a lot of offers sworn in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad a joke followed because <laughs> Being in that I, I just laughed at philosophy major. <laughs> that's well, you should. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I for, I think I knew that. I totally forgot you were a philosophy major.
5: Well, by that time I had I had decided well I'll be a lawyer, you know. Right. I was you know I'm a pretty good writer. And I was like oh yeah you write things and you convince people. Sure. But I I looked at you know I had a lot of friends in law school and and even older friends who were lawyers and none like of,
4: they're all dicks. None, none,
5: none, none <laughs> of them seemed real happy. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of work. So, what brought you to the film business ultimately? Well, I think I was just, uh, you know, you're, you hit that post-college point where you're you're flailing a little, you know, sure. especially if you're liberal arts. There's, you know, you're, you're creating a path for yourself. Uh, certainly not one is opening up, yeah. Like, like if you were a math major or something, where people are searching you out, right? <laughs> uh, and I, I just, I, I was valet parking cars and waiting tables. Where'd you valet? Oh, all over town, like the fish market. And oh, yeah, Buckhead. Val- He's valet at the Emory Hospital. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was funny. Ted Turner, and Jane Fonda would come in. Oh, really? Yeah, nice. Yeah, not not great tippers, unfortunately. Really? Yeah, oh, not, that's
4: sad. I, I, I
5: love I love the Fonda, and and he re- he
4: reeked of Cutty Sark and uh, <laughs> and cigars and shiny new quarters. <laughs> and Jane reeked of aerobic sweat and communism. <laughs> Here's a shiny quarter. <laughs> Grow up to be something. <laughs> um so you valeted and what else were you doing
5: uh waiting tables okay one of the guys applebee's right (laughs) yeah a a storied career at applebee's and was uh (laughs) the uh try the riblets for sure the uh one of the guys who i valeted with was a precision quote-unquote driver and uh right that just made me think oh there's jobs in the film business so i got an internship at a this company that actually was Krog Street, the guy, uh-huh. the guy owned the whole Krog Street complex back then. His name was Tom Arcaragi. And I think his claim to fame was he was in a movie called Grizzly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he was a great guy. I mean, he was just a charismatic dude. And, yeah. You know, I thought I'd hit the big time. I'm, you know, working for free on, on like these MCI, promote, remember MCI?
4: As soon as you said that, I was like transported back in time. Yeah, I think they used to do something. It was something. an early
5: telecom thing, right? I, I, I think telephone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was no comment i don't think that really comment was invented yet but uh we would do these things that you know I, I, and i think literally they were you know burned on cds and sent out as cd roms wow know, like direct mail source stuff and boy talk about coming in on the ground floor absolutely and i thought i was you
4: know
5: yeah i thought for sure spielberg might show up on set <laughs> yeah
4: that's kind of funny those i remember my early days in the film business too it's just like if you're a kid like us and you love tv movies like just to be on a set and see a fucking camera or the first time you see a dolly moving it's i mean it doesn't matter what it's for i think my first commercial you were on it actually and it was uh one of those colby jobs with it wasn't cialis or anything like that but it was something like that probably some big
5: bank or something back then
4: yeah or or i feel like it was a medication or something but it was just to see, like, a crew and, like, lights, camera, and action, <laughs> it was thrilling to me. Mom, they really say action. <laughs> yeah, they do. And action. Everyone has their own method. They don't say lights and camera, though, of course. Because nah. they're already on. Yeah. Back then, they used to turn them on, right? But well, then the deal is they would leave them off because they were... Because they were so hot. Yeah. yeah. So no. you'd save the lights and then say, hit the lights.
5: And some guy like us would hit a switch. Yeah. In the corner of the room. Yeah. Or yeah, the old carbon arcs. I mean, yeah, there was, there was a, they used to actually have lamp operators. They were so powerful. They had a guy who would like, you know, operating each lamp basically. Wow. Little, it was like this little stalk of carbon or that they would sort of, you know, they're sort of some gizmo where they're pushing it into the flame or something. I don't uh-huh. know. I, I know about these things nebulously. I read about them and it's hard for me to imagine I I want to go to like some old rental house and be like, yeah, the carbon arc. See that thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's valuable for people
4: who don't know anything about the film business and who might want to get into it. Like, this is a good opportunity. I talked to Raymond Carr a little bit about this, our bud. Um, But like, and I've tried to explain before when you start working on a set, you probably come in as a PA. And then what you should do from there is pick out what you want to do for a living by looking around. So, like, how did, how does that work? How did that
5: work for you? Uh, well, it was a different time back then. It was, you know, we didn't have certainly we didn't have Marvel movies in town, right? Uh, so, you know, there was an extended period of being a PA. There, was, there wasn't, you know, I always say yeah. back then this town didn't need another camera assistant, didn't need another props assistant. Yeah, yeah. Certainly didn't need another DP or director. Yeah, it was very tough to move up the ladder here. Yeah, it was. It was a very. It was a very blue collar hometown uh-huh. you know you can make a good living at it but you yeah you were going to be an ac for your whole career right you know? i think if you're lucky yeah yeah exactly i mean I, I worked hard to get into the camera department and even after i'd made it i think you know for the first couple of years i was you know i couldn't actually be a camera assistant they were like oh well you're the camera pa right <laughs> you know i have that old which, trick which means we're going to pay you as a pa and we're going to right but you'll come in with us and leave with us and in between you'll be with the camera department.
4: <laughs> yeah, but I mean we laugh cuz I was art department PA and yeah. you probably did some of that. But that's that's a good thing to do. Like you shouldn't turn your nose up on that. No, I, because I, you're a, at least doing around the people and the equipment that you want to ultimately be around.
5: It's it's I think it's the same thing in a lot of ways as when you're getting an internship in college. I I, right. I, I tell PAs when they you know they're always asking for advice. I remember asking for advice and it, it, you want to tell them something but sure. there's no there's no one answer to anything. You know, just tell them, you know, take advantage of it. Now, being a PA means you can work on a commercial today, a movie tomorrow, uh-huh. a TV show next week. You can and be on Broadway. And Broadway. <laughs> 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 a triple threat. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Take advantage of it and, and, and you know, go explore every department and see right. what, what your aptitude is, what, your, what you care about. I mean, some people, I mean, grips are amazing humans. They're the ones who keep us safe on set. And, right. You know, lots of them are climbers and they're outdoorsy yeah. and. You know, they ride motorcycles. And yeah, you, a lot you know, of gearheads. Yeah, when you when you you know you got to strap a steady cam on and somebody's going to you know pull you around a, a racetrack on a four wheeler, you want it to be some right gearhead dude who's been riding four wheelers since he was five. Yeah, exactly.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, and we've gotten to do some cool stuff over the years together
5: on set. I I would some not cool trade jobs. what I I do for anything. It's it's not been an easy road necessarily. And yeah. Lord knows there's no security in it, but <laughs> and you actually,
4: uh, I owe you thanks. I thank you, of course, in person, but uh, for everyone, Scotty is who hooked me up with Ross Marquand for uh, because you work on The Walking Dead a lot. Sort of a, it seems like you work there a lot as as a non full timer.
5: No, I don't really. I do you I, not. I, I mean, I'm not tough enough to work on The Walking Dead full time. <laughs> it's a bitch of a job, isn't that, it? that crew has my utmost respect. Michael Satrazimas was the DP for a long time, and now he's directing episodes, and he's also directing on Fear of the Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that... Is that shot here, too? Uh, no, I think that's shot in somewhere in Texas. I forget. Uh-huh. Probably Austin. I don't I don't know for sure, but... I mean, he put together a serious crew out there. Those people are warriors. I mean, it, just, yeah. it was. You know, I was out there yesterday and, you know, looked at the first scene, like, oh, that's not bad. And then the second scene, I was like, you just look at these scenes sometimes on paper, and, you know, they always say, like, you know, the most expensive eighth of a page ever written was Atlanta Burns, you know? Right. (laughs) You can write anything, but then you have to realize it. you type out two words. (laughs) Atlanta Burns. All right. (laughs) That costs you fucking $200,000. But you look at these, you know, you look at these scenes and you're like, wow, that would be, you know, a couple of days, if not a full week on a feature, but we're going to knock it out before lunch, guys. Oh, wow. And And it still looks good. Yeah. I mean, it's truly an amazing group down there. All of them. Yeah. Greg Nicotero and, you know, just... That that whole AMC crew, Tom Lewis, who's the producer. I mean, those people are, they put together a pretty tight-knit family down there. And they go through, they are in the trenches every day. Yeah, that's awesome.
2: Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away.
4: All right, let's get into Close Encounters. I saw this last night again, and it just occurred to me today that I don't think I saw the director's cut, which really pisses me off.
5: Well, there's a couple of different cuts of it, really. There I are. mean, there's the initial cut, which I think it was supposed to be released later than it was in Columbia. TriStar was as i recall they were you know back then i don't know if you remember but all the studios were sort of in financial crisis in a lot of ways they were yeah. they were booming and busting with this new blockbuster mentality for one right spend a ton of money
4: on a movie which was a big investment for them back then
5: yeah and they they didn't you know they didn't have it figured out now the way they do where they can afford to spend all these and if one of them hits were great if yeah, one of them hits were even greater now it's a it's a spreadsheet that they can kind of look at yeah so they they pushed them to to release it sooner and it's you know so there was the initial cut and then mm-hmm. i think he got a, a cut afterwards i think a couple years later he did another cut they wanted to re-release it and uh they gave him money to shoot some additional scenes like that scene where they find the uh, the big ship in the desert right that was an additional scene right and i think i think they also added like the
4: interiors of the the spaceship yeah the mothership which i i did not see that in the version i saw last night that's him he pulled those out for the 40th anniversary i think oh okay cuz he wasn't Cause he didn't want that. I well, did read that today that they said, if you want to reshoot, then we have
5: to see the
4: inside of the mothership.
5: Yeah. And I've read it both ways over the years where he wanted to do it. And, and, but, oh, but, interesting. but it sounds to me like it was probably the studio. They, they want to pay off. They, they want, right. You know, they're not going to spend two hours, two hours and 20 minutes and not see yeah. an alien, a- alien coitus.
4: <laughs> an alien bedroom.
5: <laughs> this is where we bump. <laughs> well, but, I don't know which version I saw then. Um, it's hard to tell anymore. I, yeah. I I saw one a few months back. They uh, went and sold on the big screen, and they have a 4K remastering of it, mm. and it was just where was, was that? Uh, they've been doing these trotting these out fairly regularly. They come out for like a week. Yeah, and, and is it uh, here though? Yeah. Ugh. they you know they'll be like on a Tuesday night at seven. Right. Like, All right. Just like one showing, and maybe they do a few, but uh-huh. it's always like I always end up. You know, you know I see. Yeah, <laughs> I see a lot of movies. Yeah, Scotty sees. Not every movie, but you see almost every movie. <laughs> I probably see at least, I see definitely a movie a week. Sometimes, you know, two, three, four movies if I'm not working. Yeah, I mean,
4: I would say you, if they're 52 weeks in a year, you probably see 80 movies a year, don't you?
5: Do you yeah. count? I have all my movie stubs for like the last 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> and I built a house. <laughs> it's, it's probably over 100 movies a year, I'm sure, easily. <sighs> Jeez, that's
4: amazing. I and you always say, you're the one that always says... You can learn as much from a bad movie as you can from a good movie. I've learned a lot from Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'd have a lot of respect
5: for that man. That's, I like that. Well, I kind of feel like you know, if you're going to watch something, I could I'd go home and watch it on TV, or I could go to the theater and watch it. And North Cap is great. I love it. I didn't realize that North Cap had become like a cheap theater. You can go see like a new release for seven bucks. Yeah, the matinees.
4: I, I saw a matinee there recently. And it was something like three fifty, And I was like, is this right? Do you think I'm four? <laughs> but yeah, that was, it was a delight. Not that, whatever, you know, three or four dollars isn't that big of a deal, but it just makes you feel like you're getting a value. Yeah, You're definitely getting a value, kid. So, Close Encounters, 1977. Uh, Spielberg wrote and directed. Uh, a lot of other people touched the script. I don't really know the backstory there, but he is given loan screenwriting credit. Um, he was... Dude, he was fucking like twenty nine into thirty when he was making this movie. Isn't that amazing? Yeah,
5: I mean that's unbelievable. That's, he he was he's a genius. I mean, you can you can debate it, but you know, yeah, uh, certainly the first twenty years of work stands stands on its own. Oh, for sure. So Jaws preceded this. I mean,
4: this is how it went for him. Um, Jaw, well, not counting uh, Duel, which was a TV movie, so. right? Which was good. Um, but Jaws then Close Encounters, then the big misstep with 1941. <laughs> Arguably not a misstep. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't think it's that bad, but for him, it was a misstep, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it was not a, I don't think it was a box office success, but no, I it, it love that movie. Sure. Of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then Raiders. I had him backwards. I thought E.T. was before Raiders, but Raiders, then E.T. So I had those flip flop in my brain somehow, um, shot by the great Vilmos Zygmunt. Uh, twenty million dollar budget went on to gross over three hundred million. Raiders did? No, no, no. Uh, Close Encounters. Okay. Uh, and then starring, of course, Richard Dreyfuss back in the glory days when Richard Dreyfuss could be a leading man
5: in Hollywood, which is hysterical to think about now. Yeah, and and it's amazing the people who didn't do the role in Close Encounters. I mean, I think Steve McQueen is the the only one that always pops to my mind that he turned out. Uh, was it down. he considered? But you know, you think about that movie with Steve McQueen. I mean. Steve oh, McQueen's great. He's a lot of things, but I don't know that he has the humor of Richard Dreyfuss and there's see, so much great humor. I think he does have good humor. I could
4: I think he could have pulled it off. I think I mean he's Steve McQueen. I mean I'd love to see it, trust me. <laughs> yeah, but I just always crack up at like It's like the Eric Stoltz version of Back to the Future. I want to yeah. see it. <laughs> have you ever seen any of those scenes? No. Oh god, to. it's so weird. You can get them online. Really? Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of shots
5: and it's just It's like Bizarro World. Who knows? Zemeckis is such a genius. He might just go ahead and release a version one day. I went ahead and did a whole Stoltz version. (laughs) Back back to the Stoltz.
4: So, yeah, Dreyfus, people like Dustin Hoffman were leading men. Just a very unique time in Hollywood. Like today, this character would be played by... Chris Hensworth? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or whoever the ugliest Hemsworth is. (laughs) I don't know know which one is the ugliest, but. I think there's a Johnny Hemsworth. They don't let leave the country. Yeah, exactly. He's only an eight and a half. (laughs) Uh, Francois Truffaut, weirdly. um, I had no idea who he
5: was when I saw this movie as a kid. No, that's what I mean. He was my intro to French cinema through him, you know. Why was he in this? Did he act a lot? He did some acting. Well, he started as a critic. Oh, and, uh, no shit. And then became a filmmaker, and he was going to write a, I think he was going to, I think he was ostensibly going to write a book about being an actor, which uh-huh. never got written, but that was huh. part of what he was, says he was doing Close Encounters for. But
4: Wow. He was missing his calling. <laughs> <laughs> He's a pretty good director. Yeah. Uh, the wonderful Melinda Dillon. Uh, the wonderful Terry Gar, like two of the most adorable, wonderful actresses of all time. Uh, Terry Gar, I mean,
5: uh, Young Frankenstein, Tootsie. I mean,
4: yeah, how many great things was she in back then? I love her, Mister Man. I
5: think she she got
4: sick. How oh, did she? I think something happened where, like you know, she kind of just disappeared, and I think she, I think she got sick, and that really like makes me sad because I've always loved
5: Terry Gar, um. Bob no, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny to see him in that role. I, I know. I, I think of him as, uh, you know, like, you know, Waiting for Guffman. Sure. Woody Allen. I mean, it's just. I didn't know he was acting back then. Yeah. The, I even yeah. forgot until last night and I was like, oh, shit. It's sort of like when you see Richard Jenkins, like he's become such a character. Yeah. Know, fixture. But it, I think it was that movie, uh, Little Nicky, where he plays, uh, I think River Phoenix is like his family is like they're Russian agents or something. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But Richard Jenkins had the full head of hair. He was, he, he was definitely like leading man back then, you know, but yeah, I would argue that the loss of hair led to a much more interesting <laughs> career for him. <laughs> uh, he, sh- he shouldn't
4: have gotten plugs like, uh, Ben Affleck. Does Pl- Affleck have plugs? He, he looks, I think he's pretty pluggy. Ah, uh, poor Ben. Uh, Robert's Blossom, the best known from Home Alone, the old man. Mm-hmm. He plays the, the Bigfoot guy in this. <laughs> I saw Bigfoot
5: in <laughs> 1973.
4: <laughs> and then other little small cameos, like Carl Weathers. And it's funny, I was watching the beginning, that uh, air traffic control scene, and I was like, holy shit, Gary Cole is like an extra. But I don't think it's Gary Cole.
5: Are you talking about the, uh, the black guy, the, uh, the main air traffic controller no, guy no, no, who no. is like talking to him? No, the guy, the white guy who leans in
4: over his shoulder oh, right, right, is the spitting image of Gary Cole and i looked it up and gary cole supposedly didn't start acting cuz he would have been like 20 until like 7 years later but i was like no that's gary cole Interesting. and all these people are online and are like i swear to god
5: that's gary cole <laughs> but i don't think it's gary cole well it's like the, the main air traffic controller his voice is like the, the like the exact sound of Morgan Freeman but well, it's not Morgan Freeman. That was the other thing everyone <laughs> said online is that's Morgan Freeman. I was like that's not Morgan Freeman at all. Oh right, really?
4: that's like a thing like people are yeah. yeah. yeah I guess it's that like makes Gary sense. Cole and Morgan Freeman are in the scene and neither <laughs> one of them are in that scene. He doesn't look anything like Morgan Freeman. And no. Morgan Freeman was acting. He was on Electric Company at the time.
5: Maybe he was busy with Electric Company couldn't do Close
4: Encounter. Uh all right, so the movie opens with uh and just seeing that font like last night gave me chills that Close Encounter font, <laughs> and it starts out like silently. And then you hear that John Williams sort of droning score start. Uh, And then that whole beginning out in the desert, it really sort of had a Raiders of the Lost Ark feel to me. Or, you know, Raiders, I guess, had the Close Encounters feel. But it really kind of hit me that it was sort of became a hallmark for Spielberg with Jaws, Raiders, E.T. They all had this opening scene that picked up a story that was already happening which really mm-hmm. gives us a good little trick to give you a lot of energy, but also very mysterious. Like something happens and you're not sure what's going on and then it stops and then you go to somewhere in suburbia.
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, I like, almost think like that movie is a, is a couple of vignettes to start with before we even get to Dreyfus. But that first one, yeah, it's, it's you know, the whole idea that your, your opening image of your movie should like sort of be the, you know, thematic of the movie. Like right. you know, that car sort of emerging from the dust. It's like, you know, this, you know, Essentially, you know, that's what happens is like, what is this movie about emerges over time? You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you know, film, film critique kind of, you know, right. nasal gaving nasal gazing in a way, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it's you know, it was, it was art, art that came to uh, small town America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he was just a
4: kid and he was using these, I mean, these are sort of well-worn cinema tricks. It's not like he was rewriting the book or anything. I think in fact he was like, Firmly holding on to the book and making like very traditional sort of adventure films.
5: Well, I, think, I think part of the genius of Spielberg is that, you know, people often bash him for his continuity. He's, he's sort of terrible at continuity. I mean, if you watch his movies, like sometimes things don't make logical sense. Yeah. But they make so much emotional sense that right. you, there's no point in even arguing about the logic of it anymore because you're like, it just works. Yeah. And continuity, is not a, you know, there'll, there'll be continuity problems all over the place, but
4: who cares? Yeah, I never really thought about that. You're kind of right, though. Yeah. But like this opening scene kind of reminded me of that with Raiders and Jaws and E.T. Just sort of this mysterious, or I guess in Jaws, you know, it's the lady swimming in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And like there's always this, this like this event. And uh, then it cuts to like what ends up being the heart of the story. Yeah. Or like the main characters of the story. Yeah. but it's really just a great way. Like if you're working on screenwriting or whatever out there. Like, just watch one of these movies, and, like, that's your fucking blueprint. Yeah. You know, it's such a great way to get your story going.
5: Well, and Balaban is so great, too. Like, I mean, Spielberg uses them well, too. Like, you know, when they find those old planes, you know, that went missing and everything. And, you know.
4: They were reported missing in 1945. They look like
5: they're (laughs) brand new.
4: (laughs) It's kind of obvious, but it's so great. And then he just disappears into the
5: dust. Well, yeah, but he's also, like... What's going on? I don't understand. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's like he's like yelling out what the what Spielberg wants the audience to oh, feel. Sure. So it's like you know he puts the audience on screen almost. It's, yeah. it's like you know, brilliant technique. You know, yeah, it yeah, would, for it would sure. Probably be a little ham fisted these days, but in nineteen seventy seven, oh, it was. I bought it. It holds up too. Absolutely, and then at the end, the way he just kind of recoils back, like and, you know, he's, yeah, he's like scared about what's going on. You know,
4: yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then that next little scene in the air traffic control. Which he used real real dudes for that scene, but at the end of that scene, it's such a uh, sort of an efficient way to handle things when they ask all the different planes like, "Do you want to report a UFO?" <laughs> and everyone, you know, because you hear all the madness of these navy or these pilots. This near UFOs. collision, yeah, yeah, and they're, they ask every single one of them one at a time. They're like, "Nope, uh, don't want to report anything." So you immediately have set the table. There's fucking UFOs. And this is how the government handles it, basically. This is, like, fucking buries it.
5: Yeah, well, it's it's not even that the government's burying it. It's just that nobody wants to yeah. Nobody wants to go on record and be, you know, and, and I think you see that later when, with, you know, the Bigfoot guy. It's like yeah. Spielberg addresses all of those things that are on people's minds about, like, you know, if you report a UFO, you're nuts. Well, yeah, these guys saw something, but they don't want to talk about it. And You know, and, and even, the, like, like, the back chatter of those guys we were talking about could it be an SR-71, which I think was, like, a spy plane or yeah, something. Yeah, the And they get on the phone and call, like, what are you guys testing out there? Like, they, right. they, they sort of run through all the possibilities and discount all of them in that little scene, yeah, just as, as like so as, as exposition that, uh-huh. that that has tension. You know, it's, yeah, it's wonderfully done. Yeah, man, there's so
4: much energy to it. Uh, and then you get your your hero's entrance, which is Dreyfus <laughs> playing with his train set. <laughs> and I was thinking about like if you want to make a real hero, like that would have been some slick train set that just whizzed around the corners, and the dude would have been like. All self-satisfied and (laughs) what happens is, is the drawbridge doesn't quite lower right and the train wrecks
5: and you see Richard Dreyfuss with his little schlubby like, ah, (laughs) shit, look on his face. Well, it's funny because he's, I think his his son like comes up and he wants him to explain some math thing to him. So he's trying to explain math to him and. Yeah. It's it's a very funny scene, it, it,
4: but know, so it says everything you need to know about that character, though. Yeah, like it, he's not some dashing hero, and he's
5: not a perfect dad by any means. He can't explain his kids' homework to him. You know, it's like he's yeah. Well, don't get me started on perfect dad. He fucking leaves his family. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly we'll get to that. The, <laughs> the elephant in the room for a children's film, <laughs> uh,
4: and then you know the the, the very famous uh, scene that really gets things going in that first act the the pickup truck. At the railroad crossing, which is just like six minutes or whatever of, of perfection to me.
5: Yeah. I mean, just uh, it's so well done, too, the way the, the you know, the, the first lights come up behind him and he waves the guy on and he yells at him. Oh my God. And then the next lights and then, then just, it floats up. Uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's such a good shot. That's, and you know, that train track, they shot a lot of this in Alabama, actually. That train track I is saw that. In, somewhere in Alabama, I'm uh, yeah. aware, but. I've always wanted to go there and... Yeah, yeah. Sit on it and <laughs> have me take pictures. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rock that railroad crossing sign back and forth.
4: <laughs> well, it's funny too, because there's so many great lo-fi effects, like when the mailboxes are shaking <laughs> and you can just see like right off camera, and there's some PA probably like rocking it back and forth. It's hard as, harder, harder. <laughs> but that shot is so great when that spaceship pulls up and he, he frames it such a way where you're like, it could be a car. Mm-hmm. And obviously the audience is supposed to think it's a car. And then it slowly rises it and there's another rises. set of lights and
5: another set of lights. Oh <laughs> my God. It's just so fucking cool. And when he looks up too, there's that, I had forgotten until I, I saw it again. Like when he looks up, like he looks out the window and gets the famous half sunburn. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's these flashes and these, like, like these electronic noises as if, you know, it's almost like he's being communicated at, I guess is what it was. Yeah. Sort of implying, you know, like they're sure. sending him a message.
4: Yeah. And he feels like for sure as a character that he was picked for this, yeah, you know, like everybody does, basically, that becomes like the main characters, um but what I thought was cool was it wasn't just him, I thought maybe the obvious thing to do would be just to make it him, but he goes around the corner there, and by this time, little Barry Melinda Dylan's son had run away, mm-hmm. she had caught up to him, and there's all these people like hanging out that have seen this thing, and they're just waiting there with their sign, you know that's where the guy has the sign, like "Come in peace," or
5: whatever. Yeah, I think it's, be I, friendly. Yeah, I think it's that crazy farmer, basically the, yeah. the Bigfoot guy. The, the first night, and then I think he goes back the next night, and then there's even more people. And, okay, yeah, that's right. He yeah. returns, but um, but that little hilltop, yeah, that's uh, so know, great. That's, that's where our our two main characters kind of yeah kind of hook up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that cool shot
4: too of the uh, I thought it was so funny with the um the toll bridge or the toll uh, gates, <laughs> and the guys like basically <laughs> asleep at the toll gate. And all the spaceships cruise through. Yeah. It's like such a clever thing to do. That's that's a quarter. That's a, he goes. That's oh, that's Ohio. <laughs> this is at the Indiana Ohio border.
5: I just thought that's the funniest thing to yell at some a bunch of spaceships.
4: That's Ohio.
5: <laughs> that's the uh, that is in San Pedro. Oddly enough, that toll bridge. Oh, really? Yeah. We should go on a Close Encounters reality tour. We could knock out a lot of them right right next door in Alabama. Yeah, we should totally do that at some point. Um. One of the things that I loved about that movie, too, is that it's so fun to watch the product placement in old 70s movies, you know. Coca-Cola, of course, man. Of course, Coca-Cola. All there. over the place. And uh, yeah, later, the Piggly Wiggly trucks, yeah, the Baskin-Robbins Baskin trucks. Baskin-Robbins. There's a... I don't even know. Beacons? What is K I N S? Is that Liquor or something? I don't know. There's like a big box. that I remember... When I was watching, I was like, what is that? I was like, it really stands out now. But yeah. back then, I'm sure people were like, oh. I saw some Budweiser. There's a lot of Coca-Cola. There was around. a Bud ad when he was watching TV. Yeah, the old yeah. Uh, the, the jingle. and They're drinking Budweiser, too, when they're partying and waiting for the spaceships. The old ladies on the hilltop eating Kentucky Fried Chicken and playing cards. Yeah, oh yeah, KFC. <laughs> I guess they didn't have the bucket. They had a box of chicken. <laughs>
4: That's right. Um, but it struck me last night, like, these effects still look pretty good. I mean... I'll say this. There were a lot of movies
5: made after this that looked a lot worse. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, I mean, Douglas Trumbull, who did a lot of the special effects. I mean, he worked on 2001 Uh and sort of, sort of swore off working for other people. He's, he did a, a number of movies on his own that were, that were pretty good. But, uh, he did the effects and like, you know, like the clouds, they use this big cloud tank where they would inject. Well, that fresh, looked amazing. They would inject like, I think like some sort of paint. So is that liquid? The, yeah. They, they, it was like a, I don't necessarily understand exactly how this works, but it's like a, a tank, a huge tank, like uh-huh. a 700 gallon tank or something. And it like on the top is fresh water and on the bottom is salt water and you let it get, get standstill and you can't really tell the difference. And then they inject this, you know, this white paint in basically Uh in the the freshwater layer and the salt water keeps it from sinking Uh, and that's how you get all those clouds and it's the same clouds in indiana jones when they're on the island yeah yeah i mean that shit looks good as good as it does today the cloud stuff did yeah i mean they shot all the special effects plates in 65 millimeter so that they were super high resolution so explain what that means to people well, Inclu- including me. It was just a, a much bigger <laughs> negative than a, a, a 35 millimeter negative, which is what they shot the, uh-huh. the principal photography, the stuff with the actors in. Right. So when, once they married them together, there wasn't any optical loss of the special effects. They were, okay. you know, more than enough. And even if you look at Vilma Zygmunt, I mean, he shot, this movie looks completely different from his earlier work, like, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where he flashed the film. Like, right. he was more of a, you know. That was sort of a blown out brownish look, right? Yeah. He, he, he did went for a lot less contrast than he did in this movie, but that's what Spielberg wanted. He wanted it to look real. He didn't want it to look, you know, like someone's interpretation of reality. And you look at the movie, it's so sharp. I mean, it's, and the colors are punchy and the the, the blacks are black and the whites are white. I mean, it's... I think one of the the tricks to why
4: the effects hold up too is at least with the spaceships is that he, he, they're so bright, like they're sort of uh, obfuscated by
5: brightness a bit yeah they're lost in the in the flare of the yeah and, and i think that was something else spielberg wanted he wanted that those lights to be you know four and five stops over yeah yeah you know to really it
4: know. makes sense it's a smart thing to do because then you don't like you don't have to have all the detail like and everyone's sunburned so all these things like they're brighter than human you know, like
5: earth lights would ever be so it all made sense and they did a and then once again it's you know vilma Zygmunt working well with trumbull as far as you know cause he's going to add those UFOs. Trumbull adds those later. Yeah. But on the day you got to, there has to be light on these people's faces. So how bright are they going to be? What colors are going to be? You know what I mean? They work together. Well, that's, you say that's like a good tip off lots of times in bad movies where you can tell the effects are, are plates or, 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 you know, they've got their effects and then they've got the people on green screen. But then you look at the combination of the two and you're like, wow, that light doesn't look like the same kind of light, the same quality or whatever, or not the same color. You know what I mean? That's, you know, like you said, it's amazing that movies, you know, decades old and it yeah. holds up, looks better than movies that come out. Yeah. Now, what is uh? Tell everyone what a plate is. Well, you just you shoot, you know, you, well, you would shoot on green screen, and then you know these days we'll shoot the actors on green screen, and then you add in the backgrounds behind them. I mean, like the, the Marvel movies are, you know, those are just all green screen. You know, the, so the, the plate the, is the the base. Yeah. That the, you build upon. Yeah. And then the physical props, you know, that people interact with. But Yeah. It was, and I, you know, it was like, like matte paintings too back then with Trumbull. I mean, it was, you know. It shit looks good. I mean, I, I don't think there's any CGI in that movie. I think it's all practical effects. I mean,
4: I think. They, yeah. It's models and matte. Paint. I mean, I was thinking last night, right in the same kind of wheelhouse, you had, uh, you had this, you had Alien and Blade Runner. And those three movies all still look great and hold up. Yeah, as a as a trifecta. Yeah, is really something else. And so
5: many bad looking sci-fi <laughs> movies came after this and still look bad. I'm such a big fan of sci-fi too, and it's so it's so rare that we get a good one that that holds together, visually, logically, story. Yeah, know, that's they tend to be kind of schlocky. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, so we get the first. Just
4: to nerd out for a second, the the three encounters, um, who was the guy's name? Allen, J. Allen Hynek. He's Mm -hmm. the guy that came up with this in 1972 in a book called The UFO Experience, colon, (laughs) a scientific inquiry. (laughs) inquiry. Uh, And he came up with this ranking system. uh, And he originally only came up with three encounters, which is uh, the first kind, which is a sighting within... 500 meters I think. Um or is it 500 feet? Well, if it's scientific it's got to be meters. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's 500 meters. He said basically anything outside of that can be dis- you know discarded as whatever. Got to be close enough to make it a first encounter. Yeah, exactly. Close enough to where you're like holy shit that is really something. Uh so the first encounter obviously happens there and the second encounter happens at the at the railroad crossing because the second encounter is it has to leave some kind of mark so the power not working, the power's going out, the flashlight, which is a great when the flashlight <laughs> starts back up. Such a great laugh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and then his face being burned, like all that counts is the second encounter. Mm-hmm. And then the third encounter is uh, when you actually see visible, uh, visible occupants inside the UFO, which, of course, we get at the end. Yeah. And then later on, people added like fourth and fifth encounters, which go all the way up to, you know things up your ass (laughs) the The closest of encounters the the closest encounter (laughs) that you can get the sexiest encounter uh but he i I can't i don't know which part he played
5: but he actually heineck has a a little oh that's right he extra part or something i didn't know he was the guy who did the classifications but i remember there was some like ufo guy who had a cameo in the movie who was i don't know who he played though oh lord that end of the movie is you know a, yeah. a field day for cameos i'm sure you got a thousand scientists on <laughs> well the dude it's funny you mentioned that because the guy that played
4: the uh uh iconic you know, do on the <laughs> yeah. keyboard yeah he was the guy who showed up with the equipment to install the keyboard and he was like this is how it works and he was playing it and spielberg's like you're hired <laughs> <laughs> and i mean some fucking like close-up shots of that guy's face
5: absolutely like yeah. his movie history now yeah i mean who, who gets a you know so great a, a, a slow dolly push in on. <laughs> <laughs> so
4: he sees the shit. Uh, there's a lot of conflict about what to do at home. You set up this story at home thing where obviously Terry Gar doesn't believe him, but it's like everyone else is seeing this stuff. Yeah. So he seems crazy at home, um, and that's when he goes out the second time, and the the big party is happening. I guess.
5: Yeah, and then and uh, they see the lights coming, and it turns out to be helicopters. Right. Yeah. So which. And I think there's a great part in that movie where when the helicopters come in, he sees a road sign that's shaking back and forth just the way the railroad crossing was. And it's right. like one of those great moments that makes, you know, of course it's, you know, you get, your character has to have self-doubt. So he doubts himself. He's like, yeah, yeah. maybe that's all it was the other night. Too, right. You know, this unexplainable phenomenon is now explained yeah. with a, a completely, you know, easy explanation. Right. Doesn't involve aliens.
4: I thought uh, it was interesting though when I saw that party happening in the, and the lights first start, like Spielberg, he's, he was so good at, and I guess still is, but so good at like faces at shooting faces mm-hmm. and all these people are basically extras, but they're all those great shots. And even that one great push in on that, that young girl's face. And there's just something about like, he, he, he was always just connected with the emotionality of people. Well, he he was in a great place to find them too. If
5: you're in, you know. Mobile, rural Alabama. <laughs> even today, you might find some Bigfoot enthusiasts. <laughs> That's true. Uh, then you no
4: offense, to... <laughs> we love Alabama. We do. Um, then you go back to India, where you have the tribes singing the
1: ah yeah yeah or whatever, <laughs> yeah.
4: and you see the hand signals. And I love how he keeps kind of going to that other story just a little bit, just to sort of remind you what's going on with Truffaut and Balaban.
5: Yeah, well, it's uh, the the you know the parallel storylines of here are these you know at the highest level they're tracking this phenomenon and here's this guy that just right it happens to randomly or, yeah. well not maybe not randomly but coincident uh, uh, you know uh, at the same at the same time sure but, but yeah he's you know he basically is picked by the aliens really you know but that was the
4: Spielberg thing though is to like bring a fantastical story through a suburban kid or I mean Indiana Jones was probably the biggest character but he was just a professor yeah. at the end of the day like you could have made him a just a swashbuckler but he also was like no he's also just a teacher yeah exactly. at the end of the day it's really interesting i haven't seen many of his movies lately i didn't see bridge of spies or uh
5: was uh, any good i mean yeah. i know I... You, you've seen every spielberg i'm sure yeah i mean they're I, I did... I don't know, I used to think when I was younger that you only had so many good movies in you. I don't know if right. that's true anymore. And then when I sort of thought that for most things, like, you know, you know, music or whatever, you only had so much good work in you. But I think for guys like that, I think a lot of times maybe it has to do with the fact that a lot of times art is made under constraints. And once you hit Spielberg's level, there are no constraints anymore. Right. Who's going to tell him no? Yeah. You know, and sometimes I think... You need people to tell you no. I mean, how many great things came out of... In, in movie or any kind of art came out of just the necessity. Well, I, d- I didn't have any more blue paint, so I used red. You know right. what I mean? It's, yeah. Spielberg doesn't face that anymore. He gets to do whatever he wants, and he's only limited by his own imagination.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I think, too, like not writing stuff anymore. Like, he hasn't written in a long time. Yeah, plus he's running a huge company now. I mean, it, you yeah. Know, think about all the... Distracted. Distractions in life, you know? It's true. Or maybe just, like... Don't make shit like you did when you were 27, 28. When you were hungry, yeah. Yeah, there's (laughs) a lot to that. Music, movies. What does does he have left to prove, right? That's a good point. So uh, the government denies this, of course. You have that great uh, breakdown sequence at the dinner table. Which is just like Jaws. Yeah, Like (laughs) like these Spielberg moments. That's what made his movies so great is they're fantastical and you have these big adventure stories. But he always, like, roots it and grounds it in these scenes, like, that dinner table scene is fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, a little sudden crying. Oh, and... my God. Like, especially now as an adult with a kid, like, he he looks up and, like, his kids are fucking crying because they know their dad
5: is losing it. Well, that's just such a great shot, too. It's it's the classic, you know, tight on the potatoes and the camera booms up to reveal, finally, Dreyfus yeah. looking... And realizing everyone's been watching him, right? Like, you know, and, yeah. And on a personal note, I mean, the cutlery and the the tableware was all. <laughs> I remember all of those bowls <laughs> for sure. I love and, it. I think I think you could buy them like you know back then. You could buy you bought encyclopedias in China at the at right. the supermarket. Like you could buy the whole set of like you know Corning Corningware or whatever. Yeah, yeah. We had World Book. What were you guys? We were Funk and Wagnalls people. Oh. Wow! Look at you. I don't. I didn't. I didn't know any people who were rich enough to ins- afford the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Those fuck those guys. We had the the beige,
4: beige world book, in the hallway, just right there. That was the for, internet for quick reference. Yes. The internet on the shelf.
5: Well, that's how they always knew you were cheating at school too—that you plagiarized because they could go to like three encyclopedias for, for your report exactly. on, <laughs> <laughs> on generators and. <laughs> oh man. Um, and then you have that
4: great sequence the next day, of course, when uh, Dreyfus is uh, throwing all the the plants in the window, and you know, like he's re-inspired. He he first he wakes up and he takes down all the
5: stuff. He's like, I'm done with this. And then, oh yeah, the moment he 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 goes the the model he's been building and he tries to pull it down and
4: yeah, and pulls he sees, the top
5: off and it goes yeah flat. the flat of
4: Devil's Tower. Uh, and then he goes crazy and starts throwing all the plants in the windows, and it's just such a sort of fun Spielberg scene with, you know, chaos, sort of controlled chaos
5: happening. Well, it's so great in the sense that, I mean, A, his wife is leaving him, but still somehow he gets to play it for last. I think when he, like, like flies off the hood at the end, he's sort of like, you know, the whole neighborhood's watching and sort of like, yeah, you yeah. know, smooths his hair back and walks into uh-huh. the house. like <laughs> Or climbs through the window, I think, does he? Yeah, like the at the very end and pulls up the ladder through the window. <laughs> and I felt bad for the lady next door,
4: because uh, even though she was a, a nosy Nelly, you know, he pulled up all her chicken wire and her ducks
5: got away. Which, I, I don't know that that chicken wire was keeping the ducks in <laughs> no. Once again Once again, Spielberg, not realistic. Right. But it works. <laughs> you forgive him. <laughs> what about the ducks? Well, they can fly. <laughs> <laughs> they just choose to stay inside the chicken wire because. Yeah, the chicken wire was like three feet off the ground, too. They probably could have hopped over it. <laughs> exactly. Actually, one of my favorite scenes is the scene right before that when uh, Terry Garr wakes up in the night and she finds that uh, Dreyfus has locked himself in the bathroom and she you know, old school picks the lock with like a hairpin or something. Yeah. And he's in there, you know, in his clothes in the shower. And it's such a great scene because it starts with her. That wasn't in the version I saw last night. Oh, really? Nope. Wow. So tell me. It must've gotten pulled from, yeah. felt, like I said, there's three or four versions. Floating I know. Up this so what, place. so what, what happened? Well, she wakes up like that. It's right after he got, after the breakdown at dinner. Uh-huh. So she wakes up in the middle of the night and he's in the bathroom Showers running, she picks the lock, goes in. He's like in the bathtub, crying in his clothes. You know, oh, water's yeah, totally wasn't him. in it. And he's like, you know, they're having a back and forth, and it, and basically by the end, he's like, he, he's you know got got the bathrobe on him that he's wearing the next morning, uh-huh. and, he, and he's he's like trying to you know, explain to her how important this is to him, and it ends up with her locked in the bathroom and him trying to get in to talk to her. Oh. You know, it's just like such a great. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I mean, as a screenwriter, what a great reversal. Right. You know. Yeah, that totally wasn't in it. Really interesting. Because I I did see that one
4: of the versions, like, he added stuff but took stuff out. And it actually ended up being a few minutes shorter than the
5: original version.
4: But, uh, yeah. the
5: time constraints were were different than a two-hour and 20-minute movie. Sure. It's pretty standard these days. Yeah, now Judd Apatow comedies are two hours and 20 minutes (laughs) long. (laughs) We need time to explore the comedy. Love you, Judd.
4: Come on the show. (laughs) Just kidding um all right so oh well there's that great shot on the phone the big reveal of devil's tower when you know it it could have been very easy and he just sees it on tv but spielberg saw an opportunity to play that for tension where like he keeps turning his head every time they show devil's tower on the tv and every time he looks back it's gone (laughs) and you're just like oh my god it's right there behind you
5: (laughs) it's so clever just to do like why not do that well it's such a fun shot too to be able to I mean, once again, Spielberg, it's like, there's no reason why he needed to build that model 30 feet high or, or oh, 12 feet his, high in his living house? room, Yeah, but why not? Yeah. You know, it's... Because it's, it looked great. Yeah. I mean, it, it, he he always chooses the emotion over the realism in a way, and it, yeah. it always pays off, but it's such a great shot. You know, the camera booms up from the Devil's Tower on TV to... Yeah. And he has that great great <laughs> quip later on too when he's being interviewed, and they're like, have you ever seen this? And he's like, yeah, I've got one just like in my yeah. living room. <laughs> <laughs> got one just like in my house. Yeah. I forgot about how like
4: mega art departmented up that uh, recreation in his house was. Oh, God, can you imagine the art department <laughs> building that? <laughs> yeah, and and he'd, like, got it from a bunch of, like, shrubs that he threw through the window. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, there's there's And some... a trash can. <laughs> <laughs> little leap of faith there. Yeah, how about if you had that on your resume, where you're like, yeah, I was the guy who made that, me and, like, three other people. Yeah, and with that on your resume, you'd get
5: hired to uh, do art department on another job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On crawl <laughs> <laughs> yeah can you imagine like the, the highlight that these were for people who were special effects guys a lot of the, <laughs> like not the you know not the douglas trumbulls or something but yeah you know but like the rank and file guys who <laughs> sure
4: <laughs> you going to work for some piece of shit after that um all right so the, they make their way to devil's tower the, the the great sojourn uh they get there and the you know the government has set it up that and there's that great scene where they're talking about what anthrax, like what should we use to evacuate everybody? Yeah. I can't remember
5: what they land on. Was it well, it's a, some poison gas of some kind? But. Well, there's, there's a great, uh, I, I remember this stood out to me when I rewatched it was, uh, they're talking and I think on the newscast, they're actually, uh, it's, it's a, a rail shipment of, you know, a train goes off the rails and it's shipping right. nerve gas, mean yeah, yeah. nerve gas or That's something. Right. <laughs> and, uh, the commentator is like, uh, this is only the latest example in these controversial rail shipments or whatever. You know, they sort of uh-huh. place it in this context of, like, it's just right. been going on. Like It's like a government thing. Like, like everybody knows the government's shipping their nerve gas Right, on CSX. It's like, Well, this was,
4: you know, nineteen late 1970s, not too long after Agent Orange fears and stuff like that. Well, how else are you going to get nerve gas around? I mean, come
5: on. Yeah, by train. <laughs> You're not going to carry it in your carry, you want <laughs>
4: um, What I didn't get, though, was... So the government was setting this all up uh, and then there's dead cows on the side of the road. And my thought was like, of course, they're just putting them there to make people think that they're, you know, there's real dangerous gas. But then their bird dies.
5: Well, I I, I mean, my, what assumption, was up with that? my assumption was always that in order to maintain the roots, like you see the guy like leaning in the car to get the bird. My assumption was he injected he it with the bird? something. Oh, okay. Or, or maybe he wrung its neck. Yeah, I, always, I, I guess my child mind always thought, maybe he gave it a little shot to make it go to <laughs> sleep. <laughs> maybe he and just... he's just going to wake up and fly away. <laughs> maybe no, he... he probably just snapped his finger around its neck. Absolutely. Like an Appalachian okay. woman cooking a chicken. He just so... wrung its neck.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so is that to be assumed then? Is that he killed the bird on the way back to the car?
5: That was my assumption. Okay. Was that, you know, it was all to maintain the ruse. And, you know, because gotcha. at that point, there's that great scene where they're, you know, looking at the birds and they, they actually slow down. And there's that shot with the, the deck and they both sort of look at each other and then put on their gas masks, you know. Right, right, saying? right. And roll up their windows. Well, there's the great one in the uh, in the helicopter later, which is such a, a great shot. I remember. Yeah, that's awesome. I uh, I remember reading a story from Vilma Sigmund about how they got that shot. Like Spielberg wanted the camera to move through the helicopter. And of course we didn't have all the technology right now, you know, so they took like a crane arm and a two by 12, really you know, piece of lumber uh-huh. and Vilma Zygmunt laid on the, on the board so he could operate the camera as it pulled back all the way through the helicopter. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think about that. I wondered how they did that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you take it for granted now with all yeah, these sure. amazing techno cranes and you know, you can send the camera across the street through a window and down the hallway now. Yeah. Or
4: chit drone it wherever the hell you want. Yeah. I saw a shot on uh, Ozark Season 2 the other day that I guess was a drone, but it blew me away. This uh, boat, high-powered boat, flying across the lake, and the drone meets it like this and flies along with it then. But I didn't think drones could go that fast. They, I mean— it's amazing what you can do with the the off the shelf ones, but yeah, I mean, or the dr- or the boat may have you know it's that thing where it looks like it's really hauling ass, but it was probably going like twenty, <laughs> you know,
5: yeah, I had twenty miles an hour on a boat, you know. Yeah, I mean that's true.
4: Um, I have to show you that shot though; it's pretty great.
5: Yeah, I haven't watched enough of that show. I mean, and I, I, I work at the studio that they shoot it at a lot, but I just yeah. haven't, haven't gone out there and played it all. Brett's on that, not he, or was? Yeah.
4: Our good friend Brett, everybody, worked on uh, props on that, on Ozark. Um, so th- after the helicopter scene, the take off the masks, pretty great moment. He and Terry Garr, and now this new guy Wary or yeah, something <laughs> have the the most lo fi escape of all time, which is pretty great, like on this base full of soldiers. Just sort of run away. Once again, Spielberg, you're not going to get bogged <laughs> down in the reality of it. <laughs> What's important is they get out of there. Oh, my God. And it's they just sort of dart through some barrels. And I think there's a guy who's like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they just kind of run by everyone. Who are those guys? And even Truffaut sees them out the window and they get away, which is all that matters. Yeah. Uh, and then you spend the next like, uh, he he really kind of takes his time like the next like 10 minutes of the movie i feel like are getting them to the top of the tower which fits like it made sense but usually you would just like put them up there yeah well you, know, you got
5: to have one last struggle for
4: your heroes or whatever yeah right? it was like man versus nature though cuz they're literally climbing and sliding down
5: um what happens to larry though i forgot Well, remember they talk about uh they talk about like they're if they can't get everybody off the mountain they're going to spray some sort of sleeping gas i think it was like easy 20 or something right. easy 24 you know yeah what they used on the bird <laughs> yeah the, the guy's like i think there's actually a partner. he's like well what's that and he's like same thing we used on the livestock they'll sleep for uh, six or seven hours and... i missed
4: that line yeah okay that makes sense
5: yeah he was i mean that's so what happened did larry get blasted yeah, with that yeah i think larry fell behind and uh oh okay and, and took the, the the full dose and i don't know how i missed that last night because i was watching
4: it and i've seen it a million times then i was like wait a minute what where the fuck is larry well, frankly, that's one part of the movie that that they didn't need Larry. That, that you could almost <laughs> fast forward. <laughs> no, you're right. That 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 sequence it it's almost a little too long. Yeah, to me. Well, there's so much. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, there's helicopters, there's planes. They're struggling. They're sliding.
5: Movie with so many
4: great things. That's, yeah, like, you know, it's fine though. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bag on it. Uh, and then they finally get to the top. You have that beautiful shot um, of the tower and the base and the night sky. And it's just like, it's fucking gorgeous. And no, that no. tower's so cool looking.
5: Alabama's never looked so great. <laughs> <laughs> no. That was Devil's Tower, right? No.
4: Well. Devil's I wonder where tower. that was, the,
5: the base. Where did they recreate that? It was that? in Alabama. Was the, oh, you know, really? There's like some, you know, it's like you, when in a studio when you're trying to shoot something like that. What always gets you in a studio is how far apart are the supports. You know, yeah. You know, yeah. you get to hold up that roof. So studios are, you know, usually so that you can have big wide open spaces. Uh-huh. Sometimes in Atlanta, we shoot in these, like, warehouses that have been converted into studios. And it's funny, like, there'll just be a wall someplace right. for no reason. You're like, oh, there's the support for the roof. But I think it was, it was someplace in Alabama, and I think they used to keep dirigibles there or something, you know what so I mean? So that was interior. Yeah. Wow. Well, that set, like, you know. Yeah, the base. Yeah. Unbelievable. And supposedly, they uh, this also, I I've, I can't remember where I read this. Like, I read, you know, anytime I can find, like, first-person accounts from cinematographers or oh, something, yeah. I'll jump into it. And I think they, they they were shooting like the train scene where Driver stops in the small town and that's where he runs into the mother again, Jillian. And mm-hmm. She's out searching for her son. Right. So I guess she's been caught up in, you know, the army or whatever, trying to evacuate these people. They're trying to put her on a train and there's that wonderful scene of them running towards each other like a love story almost, you yeah. know, like cross-cutting them running and then, you know, through the doors of a boxcar or something we see them you yeah, know, yeah. unite and, you know. But uh, apparently Vilmos had to leave set and leave that with his gaffer and his operators to shoot mm-hmm. because they were supposed to go and start shooting the big final sequence. And the studio suits were like, well, yeah, we'll just start shooting tomorrow. And he's like, well, I have to light the set, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, he rushes off and starts pre-lighting the set, which, you know, of course, with all those bright UFOs. I mean, oh, I'm sure that was a hell of a pre-light. Yeah. And they're shooting with, it was like 5247 was Kodak's first color stock. and mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they shot. Raiders with that's what they shot Blade Runner with that's mm. what they shot this movie with 100 ASA uh, it's not a fast film stock mean right. the Alexa which is you know the camera now is 800 ASA base ISO so you know just three times faster wow so explain to people what that means as I mean, simply it, as possible. I mean, could you just imagine being an actor back then, I mean, and having to be under those bright lights and... So you just need a lot more light. And not sweat yourself to death. I mean, I think almost yeah. part of being an actor had to be, you know, if you were a sweater, you probably weren't going to make it. Well, I would have been toast. <laughs> <laughs> as you well know. Yeah, <laughs> I'd always say I can stand next to anybody, do the same thing, and sweat three times as much. Yeah. Well, I could outdo
4: that even. <laughs> uh, one thing that struck me last night, too, was how, like... The setup with the huge speakers and the light boards—like, not only was it cinematic and cool, but it feels like exactly how it would have been done, like how the government would have set this thing up. Yeah, there's all those great shots
5: of the rows of rows of cameras just yeah. clicking away. And, it all seemed really realistic to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like—I I, I can't imagine it being any different now. Almost, I mean, yeah. Maybe it's—it's it's just so burned into my mind. It's
4: well, they would go overboard today, I think, but this was like. It was hi-fi enough and lo-fi enough to be just completely believable. Yeah, you know, I think that was the right recipe was to make it t- technologically advanced, but also we're also just playing a keyboard. Well, then you know, you start off by making everything
5: white. And, yeah, uh, and yeah. so everything else stands out. I really thought about that. well, you know, it's kind of like a That's cool. They have you know these old Airy cameras that the, the astronauts took to the moon. You know, yeah. they're, they're white. And they also say like, they, like medical cameras yeah. or like filming medical procedures. Like, you know, you could have like an old airy camera, like on set, we would have a black camera because you right. want reflections. But then in that world, everything was white because it had to be sterile. And, right. You know, uh. the white's not going to hide the dirt. So a little smudge of dirt. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. There?
4: How much did you love that scene of that bank of, uh, 35 millimeter cameras <laughs> just going.
5: <"D-d-d-d-d-d-d-d." laughs> I love that. And you see, and you see the same thing now, at like sporting events that it was working at the final four this year. And, you know, there was a row of, you know, five D's and Nikon's like lined up and they're all, you know, rigged with triggers and oh, you know really? it's all digital. So they're just, you know, uh-huh. when they, when they get down that end and uh, they just take a gazillion pictures. Just, yeah. just I, I still remember when I, when I was working on the 96 Olympics, we were, we were at the, we did all the, uh the track and field stuff Uh and we were at the finish line, which was, you know, amazing. I was, I was lucky enough. I was a camera PA and and the DP and AC, I was, they were like the best guys in town. So I got lucky and ended up in the plum position there at the finish line. Awesome. And there was a guy behind us who worked for the New York times, I think. And he had the first digital still camera I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And he took a picture of, uh, what's his name? Michael Johnson. I think he won the 200 meters. He Mm -hmm. was the guy who used to wear the gold shoes. Yeah. Yeah. He took a picture, showed it to us, and then he somehow magically put it on his computer and sent it somewhere. <laughs> wow. And then that was the picture on the front page of all the papers the next day.
4: God, that's so funny how like <laughs> that was the fucking future.
5: Yeah, cutting edge. We were uh, that was the last Olympics they shot on film. We were shooting film and Man. And who'd you work on that with? That's where I met your wife.
4: That's all right. Right.
5: <laughs> Everybody.
4: Emily and Scotty knew each other before I did even. We did. How about that? We did. And I was lucky enough to end up with her. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, another scene that I like there, another shot was when, you know, when the thing finally talks back is after, you know, they're playing the thing in a loop and it's not talking back. What gets them to talk back is when Truffaut marches out there and like beckons the thing. (laughs) He marches right up to the end of the ramp and just like shakes his hands at the thing. And that's when it, you know, starts finally talking back musically. Yeah. And what? that iconic, you know, I think they tried a ton of different arrangements of notes, and that's the one that John Williams
5: and Spielberg went with. Oh, and it's it's such a great, you know, motif throughout the movie. You, you, I think there's a scene where they uh, where Balaban figures out that the message from space is coordinates, and they figure out Devil's Tower and yeah, everything. Yeah. Uh, at the end of that scene, Truffaut is he's at the keyboard and he's making the sound, uh-huh. and then you cut to I think. I think uh, you cut to Barry, the little kid, and mm-hmm. he's playing the same thing on his xylophone. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's a scene later on where someone's on the phone and and the tone starts coming through the phone. It's, you know.
4: It, it, I mean, it be, I don't know if you remember, but it, that became like part of the cultural zeitgeist, that tone, that sound. Like, I remember, I don't even think I saw this. I was only six years old, so I didn't see it till later. But I remember, do, 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 do,
5: like running around and singing that. It's so funny. <laughs> well, it was, I mean. I would. I always wish somebody would do like TV Land would do like not just like reruns, but like they'd show a whole night of TV from 1975. Yeah, like show the lineup, show the commercials, uh, the whole sh- deal. show the newscast. You uh-huh. know what I mean? That would be so much fun to see because that I bet that jingle was in a million commercials in the yeah late seventies, eighties. Awesome. Um, then we get the mothership. Finally, the big entrance.
4: All the ships come in. And you think, as an v- audience member, like, oh, like this is it? This is it? Yeah, they all sort of leave for a second, and yeah. everybody's congratulating themselves. I'm like, yeah, no, they, they all way to applaud, <laughs> and they're like, all right, that's the thing. But it's a very like effective little filmmaking trick, I think, to be like, oh no no,
5: there's an encore. Yeah,
4: there's an encore, <laughs> and that's when the mothership comes, and the mothership really holds up well. I mean, that shit looks great. Yeah, absolutely, I it mean, looks really good. Can't go right, wrong with a bunch of shiny lights. Yeah, and and models, and you get a little more detail. Like it's less blown out um, and the detail looks good, but uh, that's when they had that great scene, you know, that really playful scene where they push the, the keyboard up and they start playing with each other. And I imagine John Williams just had so much fun. I'm just trying to picture him like a kid in a candy <laughs> store writing about like the a spaceship talking through like, I don't even know what it is. Oboes and tubas or. Yeah, I guess or prob-
5: probably, probably the whole orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, well, it's a, well, I did. I I imagine it was probably an idea that had a lot of currency at the time. And the, you know, it was probably somebody like Asimov or somebody who was like, we will probably communicate musically. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Sure. You know, the universal language of music. Yes, It will be tones, <laughs> familiar tones. Yeah. I wish I understood more about music. They're, they're talking about like the scale they're using or whatever. Yeah. And you know, I'm not smart enough musically to know if all that was accurate. Come on, band guy,
4: <laughs> trumpet guy. Uh, and then finally, you know, we, we it lands, the, the Flyboys exit, and that's such a great moment, you know, just to tie everything back
5: together. The, the planes they found at the opening of the movie, now the pilots are here.
4: The pilots are here. Uh, they're all, they all have that just been banal probed look on their face. <laughs> 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 and it's, that payoff is so great, man, when they're, they go over to the big board, you know, they have the list of all those missing people over the years, and they just start,
5: Chalking them off one by one. Oh, yeah. So cool. All those great, like, it was like slide film or pictures of them. And they're like. It's like a light wall. And a big Sharpie or whatever. Was the thing back then.
4: (laughs) So great. Uh, And, you know, that could have been the end of the movie. Of course, Barry comes out, which seeing this movie now with a kid, it was just like gut wrenching to see him get reunited with uh, with mom. Yeah. Um, Whereas before I was just like, oh, great. There's the kid. And now I'm just like, oh my God,
5: <laughs> Barry,
4: Barry I love is you. back. <laughs> Have you seen that guy today? Uh-uh. Does he, he? He looks just, I mean. did he okay? He doesn't look like a. No, nah, he looks great. He looks like a little, he looks like he works at a bank or something in Indiana. <laughs> yeah, <good> for him. That's <laughs> great. Yeah. yeah th- those are the worst when you pull him up and he's got like, like ear gauges and <laughs> like tattooed face. And... <laughs> no offense to anyone out there
5: nothing wrong with that the uh,
4: uh i
5: think uh well it's so great at the ending too it's like you know there's that well the whole thing of, of them ending on but on helicopter all those people were brought to that base by truffaut because he you know he tells the helicopter to wait five more minutes because he goes in and he pleads the case of the general to let some of these let these people come like yeah yeah he, he understands that, the, that they've been contacted in some uh-huh. way and that they should be there if yeah they want he's right like, anti-dreyfus yeah if they want to make contact with these people then let's bring the people that they invited and you know but uh there's the there's a the scene like i think after they're in the desert and they you know they have all the audio guys recording you know the people chanting the ah, ah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah and then they're playing it back at that conference they cut from that to the conference and everybody's clapping like oh what a astounding discovery you know what <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean but in that one you see off to the side you see like there's 12 people which I, I, I counted one time because I was like, I wonder if that's significant. There's 12 people. Uh-huh. And they're all like, you know, back then, they, they were on these yellow jackets. They had like Century 21 realtors or right. something. But they're the same 12 people later. They get marched out in the red jumpsuits. Oh. And you can tell it's the same people because there's one woman who has sort of a blonde beehive. Uh-huh. It's absolutely the same people. So they're there at this thing where they're playing the music and then they're the people that they march off to be the... Oh, interesting.
4: To be the... The volunteers, the basically. Volunteers. It's funny. That's kind of one of the only thing that looks really dated is those people in those red jumpsuits. <laughs> it's like, you've got these spaceships that still hold up, but then it's like, let it, me put on my red jumper. I'm dressed like Evel Knievel, because it's modern times. <laughs> it's like wardrobe is what makes this thing look dated. It's yeah. really funny. They'd have been better off in, in, in blockbuster <laughs> khakis and blue shirts. <laughs> um, well, and then this, that's the big moment, you know, that the door opens and the, and the Slender Man comes out. <laughs> and again, he like kind of obfuscates the the detail enough. Like it's a really smart thing to do to just backlight the hell out of it. And like, yeah, just silhouettes. Yeah. And, and then the little dudes come out and you know, they're little space guys. I mean, it's such a great payoff. I don't think when I first saw it, I don't think I ever thought that I would see that like, nah, like he's not going to show anything like that. I thought the mothership was just going to leave. Yeah.
5: Yeah. But I didn't, I mean, you know, I think we take it for granted now that that's what an alien, I mean, there was that, I guess that span of 70s and 80s were, you know, yeah. that's what an alien looked like. It was going to sure. a little bulbous-headed. Yeah, they're like
4: three and a half feet tall, no clothes, big head, big yeah. eyes. Yeah, no need for clothes. Big black eyes. <laughs> eyes roll back. <laughs>
5: <laughs> like a baby doll's eyes.
4: <laughs> uh, and then that look on Truffaut's face, I never realized either until last night that uh, it's envy. He's looking... Like, I never could parse it out, but when I was looking at it last night, I was like, that's envy. He
5: wants to go. You think so? I totally think so. I guess I read it more as, like, happiness. Like, job well done. In a a sense that he was able to get Dreyfus there. Because when they come out, they walk down that whole line of red-suited volunteers, and they go to Dreyfus and— take his hands immediately and pull him aside. Like, oh, yeah, and they he, start checking him out. He's, he's the one we want, you know? Yeah, like, what's, what's your jumper size? <laughs> what size jumpsuit do you wear? <laughs> do these come in extra small
4: and really skinny? <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm a medium stubby. Do you have that? <laughs> it's like, sure, it's 1976. Uh, and that's it. You know, he, he boards the mothership and then it floats away like a big, beautiful ELO album. Although, the, in another version, you get to see the interior like we were talking about, which I did not see.
5: The, uh, well, and I think this comes back to the point that you made earlier that he does leave his family. It always, it's a, well, that's, that bothered me yesterday. Like it had never
4: bothered me before. Well, and it's weird. He leaves his wife and three children and and kisses Melinda
5: Dillon. Yeah. And then he shares that look at Melinda at the end when he looks back at her and they, it's almost like he's saying goodbye to his family in a sense. Like that's the last person on earth that he has a, that he sees that he has a, any kind of connection to. Yeah. It's. Yeah. I mean, do you you forgive
4: Dreyfus or not? You know, I don't know, man, because I don't think it's supposed to come across that way. It's like this sort of triumphant, big, wonderful ending. But as now a grown up with a wife and kid, all I could think about is where is Terry Gar and those three kids? And why I'm sure they're devastated. Yeah. He was, he was like, what
5: an electric. He worked on the, worked for the power company and got fired. Uh And so now his wife has three kids and. Yeah. You know, wherever, Muncie, Indiana. Or a, wherever. a wrecked
4: house. Yeah, thanks. With the Devil's Tower rec- recreation in thanks the middle of it. Thanks for leaving a mess. <laughs> um, ducks everywhere. Yeah, the follow-up movie would be uh, rather depressing. It would be. <laughs> <laughs> but he, like, it bothered me that Close he was— Close encounters with poverty, <laughs> of the first kind. <laughs> uh, he was just, like, happy, like, all right, here I go on my adventure. But I was just like, man, that's not quite right. It never hit me like that before, so
5: it was the seventies, man. It was a different time, you know we yeah. love you know I know <laughs> i I'm, I'm missing the point <laughs> no i i i trust me that when i when I saw it again years later, I thought to myself, like, wow, oh, he just ditched his family, yeah, you know? <laughs> but you know, maybe he comes back in thirty years and marches off the plane all young and yeah. Gary Garth's happy to see him. I don't know. I doubt it. No, she's living with Michael Keaton. <laughs> she's <laughs> Mr. Mom. <laughs> she's, she's running the tuna fish account. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, God. Martin Mull. He's so good in that movie.
2: Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away.
4: All right, we finish up, Scotty. Uh, I'm not going to do the full Ebert thing, so I couldn't find a good pull quote, but he did give it four stars. That was nice. Of one it. of his faves. But we're going to finish with five questions. Uh, what's the first movie you remember seeing in the theater? Jaws. Goddamn. <laughs> first R-rated movie you saw? Well, I guess Jaws, huh? I guess that would be Jaws. Was it R-rated? I think it was, dude. Or was it? Probably had to be. Look it up real quick. I'll keep everyone occupied. Um... I mean, technically, that my first R-rated movie was *Blazing Saddles*. Oh, if nice you one.
5: count the uh, oh, I don't have internet. If you don't, if if you count the drive-in, I remember getting taken to the drive-in to see, uh, what was that? I, re- I remember like hiding under my brother's legs in the back seat, like to get snuck into the drive-in. And we went and saw a uh, it was that Orson Welles history, or he did some really dry movie about the history of the world or something. Oh, really? Yeah.
4: Speaking of drive-ins, shout out to the Dramora Drive-In, <laughs> Mornington Peninsula, Australia cuz I'll post this picture everybody. We were driving down the road, opposite wheel, opposite side of the road by the way. Uh, props to me for doing that successfully. And you were on the phone uh with your girlfriend and you went, "Hold on, dude, turn around." I was like, "What?" And you were like, "Turn around, go back there, trust me." I turn around, there is a drive-in movie theater. In the sleepy little beachside town in the Mornington Peninsula that has a full-on X-wing fighter sitting atop the entrance.
5: Yeah, I mean that thing. A beautiful one.
4: Yeah, whoever built that labor of love. Yeah, it was big. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't to scale, but it was—it was probably half size.
5: Yeah, it was it enormous. Was large. Yeah, it was halfway through. Somebody definitely went. Man, what did I start?
4: <laughs> I know. God, I'll post a picture of that. Everyone. The uh, the the only downside was is that it was Wednesday and we were leaving the next day and the drive-in didn't start till the Thursdays. Yeah, the whole notion of I would the drive-in totally theater on.
5: Uh, alongside the ocean, I had never really considered it before, but yeah. Well, the Meg was playing. I was like, oh man, I can't <laughs> imagine it."
4: seeing the Meg, even though you said it was terrible. It was, yeah, it was not good. Uh, all right, number three, do you walk out of a, well, I know the answer, but do you walk out of a
5: bad movie? Uh, years ago, I would have said no, never, but the older I've gotten, yeah. Well, and lots of times I, I will go see a bad movie, knowing that it's bad, and then I'm just going to... See a bit of it. Yeah, watch the first 20 <laughs> minutes, and then the movie I really want to see starts a like, half hour later. And... Still came in the system. <laughs> what was the last one you walked out on? Do you remember? Last one I walked out Should have been The Meg. Uh, oh, but interestingly enough, the last one I walked out on was Happy Time Murders. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of one joke. I mean, I'll, I'll eventually see the rest of it but do you know a movie we
4: haven't talked about this yet you didn't like recently that i thought was really good was hostiles
5: i love that movie you know it was on the plane and i i thought about watching it a couple of times but that was not the uh-huh. ideal i really want to give it a try since you liked it so much there was just that scene in the desert where when it when a director does a scene where someone's like screaming out at the like christian bale's like screaming out like the anger that he has to <laughs> escort this man he wants to kill yeah and it's just shot after shot just like they shot the scene sixty times and they just edited together Did parts they cut of 60 different takes. angles of him going. Oh, it just seems so. I mean, it right. just seems like lazy filmmaking to me.
4: Hey, I know you, buddy. You, you <laughs> the, the littlest thing can throw you off, and then that movie is dead. Uh, all right, Happy Time Murder. She walked out of. So, no offense, Melissa McCarthy. I thought she was wonderful. She is great. Um, number four, I will say, since you're a cinematographer, what is the most beautiful? movie you've ever seen or
5: cin- cinematically what, what is your favorite film of all time i don't know i know that's tough it's hard, it's hard to pick a favorite movie i think just because i see so many and it's ever changing i mean for a long time jaws was my favorite movie that, i mean the look of it the, the the photography well you know i think a lot of a lot of you know people would say something like days of heaven or something it's just amazing because sure. it's all shot at magic hour right but... lawrence of arabia yeah, I mean, to me, I, I, you know, there are different movies. Lawrence of Arabia is a beautiful movie. I mean, this Close Encounters is a beautiful movie. Yeah. I think, I think my, I mean, it would probably just be based on my taste. And I do tend to prefer a more contrasting image, sort of like, like Close Encounters. But, All right. you know, doing it for a job, you got to be, you got to be able to do whatever somebody else wants. I mean, if almost Zygmunt wouldn't want to shoot this movie this way, but he shot right. it that way because that's what Spielberg wanted to instead be able to do whatever people want. But, I don't know. I guess I tend to enjoy a rich color palette and... All right. You know. Cop out. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Roger Deacon? Uh, yeah. Roger Deacons?
4: Deacons. Yeah. Roger Deacon was in Queen, I think. John Deacon was in Queen.
5: <laughs> yeah, oh, man. Yeah. I'd Maybe d- I am jet-lagged. When you call me a cinematographer, I I'd, I'd, I'd say, I'd, I'd say you use that term loosely. Oh, you know, come on. I'm a guy with a camera. Come on. Uh, and then
4: finally, movie going 101... Uh, I know this as well, but because uh, we go to a lot of movies together, what uh, what's your what's your jam at the movies? Where do you sit, and what do you get at the old refreshment counter?
5: Uh, I used to be a Coke and popcorn guy, but I quit drinking Coke, and popcorn's no fun on its own. So, I kinda, oh, yeah, I kind of do nothing now. Yeah, but definitely, you know, want to sit right in the middle and try and maximize the screen so that it fills my field of vision and I'm not looking at exit signs off to either left or right. You know, yeah. I don't want anything else bright in the frame. Yeah. But. I,
4: I will also tell people uh, that you were one of the most skilled um, half look people <laughs> <laughs> annoyed half look that I've ever seen in a theater <laughs> when someone is texting or on the phone. The old half turn, like, are you fucking serious?
5: Look, <laughs>
4: you're a master, my friend.
5: Well, I mean, you know, you got to turn your cell phone brightness down if you're in the theater. I mean, everybody's got to... You shouldn't be on it at all, but at least, for God's sakes, turn your brightness you, down. You got to check sometimes. You ain't got to check your messages, but yeah, don't don't turn on your flashlight in the middle of the theater. And
4: <laughs> I thought that lady's going to kick your ass. That was great. <laughs> I'll tell that story one day. All right, dude. I think we did it.
5: We did it. Close Encounters in the books. All right. Thanks, man.
4: All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, that was good stuff. Fun to sit down with Scotty and rap for a bit like we do all the time, five times a week, like normal friends do. But uh, it was good to do so in an in, uh, in official capacity here on Movie Crush. Uh, hopefully he could um, enlighten you with some some film stuff and some insider tips and tricks and knowledge. Uh, he certainly taught me a thing or two in this very episode. So hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Looking to do more of this, everyone. I think I'm kind of opening the gates. Might even get a listener on here at some point. My God, i got to figure out a way to do that. I know people have been calling for it. Why not? I'm open to it. So I hope you enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What a great, great movie. And always enjoy hanging with my pal and talking movies. It's one of our favorite things to do. Until next time, definitely board the mothership, but only if you're single. Don't leave your wife and kids behind. Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at How Stuff Works Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia.
3: This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually